Welcome to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics. That's comic books, everybody. This is the only podcast hosted by two brothers where they talk about a thing they love, and that thing is comic books. I'm one of your hosts slash brothers slash kind of comedians, Kevin Hines. And I'm the other host, Will Hines. Yeah, I'm kind of a comedian, too. Yeah, I think you're more of a you're more kind of than I am. I'm you're kind of a little bit and you're kind of plus. Yeah, you're kind of minus and I'm kind of plus. Mm-hmm. All right. I will accept my dominance over you. Great. Um, put that on your uh, acting resume that you submit to firms and... Oh, nothing's nothing's more important than an acting resume. Yeah. You go on Indeed.com and you submit your resume to a few uh, television shows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm still hoping it works. And I put on there, interested only in lead parts. <laughs> hey, you got to uh, apply for the job you want. It's going to be a dumb thing. It's not dress for the job you want. It's just apply for the job you want. It's very yeah. practical advice. You don't want that job? Don't apply for it. Yep. <laughs> it's our dad giving job <laughs> advice to people. Uh, so this is a Mutants and Mailbags episode. Well, this is where we discuss some of Chris Claremont's X-Men comic books. And then we also answer emails that people have submitted to screwitcomics at gmail.com. We've got a ton, so we are way behind on that. Well, I think we can burn through these issues pretty quick today because um, the issues we're doing today for the X-Men compared to the ones we just did and compared mm-hmm. to the ones we'll do next time, they're a little bit of a, a break almost. Yeah, we're covering four issues, not five issues. to so sort of decide four or five based on just where arcs land. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're covering issues 138, 139, 140, plus annual four. So everything prior to Days of Future Past, but after the death of Phoenix. So it's just like... It's a little it's a little breath almost. They take a breath in between these two epic stories. Yeah. In fact, the first issue is mostly just a recap. I think we're going to breeze through it. It's, yeah, it's a fine it's, recap, but uh, so we I, might get, be able to, I get nothing out of it. We might be able to um, get to the emails pretty quick today. I guess we're saying if you like the X-Men portion... Skip this episode. Yeah, this this might this is a little bit of a uh, uh, boring <laughs> bunch of I don't know they're actually they're actually fine issues, but just compared uh, to the yeah to the two so, uh, high watermarks that are that surround them. So the emails are going to live up more than live up to. Oh, if you're a mailbag fan, if you if you listen to these apps just for the mailbag, this is it for this is a banner app. And uh, there's some good stuff. Well, you don't even know. You don't even know what's coming. I don't know. I do very little prep for this show. Okay, so let's uh, let's dive into it. Let's talk about issue one thirty eight. This is right after Phoenix has died. Did so you the, get a chance to read, by the way, the um, no, the, not yet. The, not oh, yet. I'm gonna, uh, talk, bro- I'm gonna my, talk a little bit about that. But. Yeah, my brother sent me. Why don't you say what it is? Why don't you just let's I not what keep it's called in- the the life story of Phoenix. The the special the the original ending for the Phoenix story. Yeah, the one where she doesn't die. Yeah, which well, I forget what that issue is called. Um, Let's see. It is called The Untold Story. Phoenix, The Untold Story. Okay. And so what happens in that issue... So, like, in, in the one we covered, the only one I... Uh, I mean, we hadn't read any of these X-Men comics. Uh, they're fighting the Guardians, and then at some point, Phoenix reemerges, blows up like a ship in the orbit, and then Phoenix kills herself. Right. Because they're going to come kill me anyway, so I'm just going to kill myself, make it easier on everyone. Yeah. And also, I think she knew, like, if Phoenix keeps coming out, they might not be able to stop me. Yeah, she's like, I might not be able to control Phoenix, and it's too much work to keep her to keep Phoenix in check for my whole life. So I didn't read the whole issue, so there might be dialogue changes throughout that are tweaked here and there. I can't say that for sure. But the basic difference is, like, when Cyclops and Phoenix are fighting off the forces, it basically pulls out, and it's like, and they were defeated. Cyclops and, you know, Phoenix put their last, or Marvel Girl, I guess at this point, did their last stand, and of course they lost. They were way overpowered by the Imperial Guard. And then she gets put into like this machine that removes all her powers. Okay. And they're mad about that, like that her powers are taken. Uh, but and like when she comes out of it, she's completely weak. It seems like she has got no powers anymore. Like the, the rapport between her and Cyclops is gone, and she like collapses into Cyclops' arm, and that's sort of how the issue ends. Okay. And so that's how it was going to end prior to Shooter and everyone getting involved and changing it. All right, Kevin, what do you think about that? It, it's 
not as good. It's it's way 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 less interesting. Yeah, it's less impactful. Depending on what you do with it after, could change it, right? Like obviously, yeah. there's some talk in this untold story where John Byrne talks about how he, uh, how he and Chris have talked about maybe like that her, like uh, that the powers maybe are still in her and sort of working their way back out again. I mean, with, or, you, you call it Phoenix. It's it's designed to rise from the ashes. Yeah, there's also some talk about maybe that a gene has been turned into like the brain of a five year old afterwards. Man, they love brains of five-year-olds. Didn't they do that with Magneto? Not yeah, them, yeah. but like uh, Roy Thomas or something like that. Like they, they love they love turning people into babies. Yeah. So like, there's stuff like that where it's like, oh, there would be definitely ramifications for Gene that you could play with and maybe build up to something. Mm-hmm. And maybe having Phoenix be almost like a recurring villain that could be sort of looming over the X Men, right. and that certainly is interesting but it just it definitely would comparing it to the actual issue they served print it just doesn't seem that impactful at all right uh the death of phoenix is a milestone story but the depowering of marvel girl doesn't have the same ring to it uh anyway uh it's an interesting it's interesting obviously with a comic like that that was all but finished that they like let's just finish this up and sell it of course that makes complete sense why would you not do that yes uh so let's talk about issue 138 so in the actual continuity X-Men, Phoenix dies. This I, is the issue. I would also say okay. in the untold, the reason I asked you to read it is because there's a cool interview in the back. I still think you should go and read it well. I, I will read it, yeah. Because John Byrne and Chris Claremont and Jim Shooter and Jim Salkrup and I think Louis Simonson is involved, as well as I think one other editor, all basically discussing what happened. Yeah, it's interesting to to see, you know, to realize that these big, big stories that have huge impacts, now they could have gone another way. And it, it reminds me of my interview with Claremont because a lot of it is like sometimes we're trying to give credit or take blame. And it's sort of like everything's kind of going around. And there's moments where it's just like, well, this is all Chris. Chris is like, I don't know about that. And they're like, well, this is probably all John. John is like, well, I also wrote that. <laughs> sort of like, well. Yeah, Claremont uh, loves, he loves to be a contrarian. Yeah, so there's lots of discussion there. But there's also like uh, John Byrne sort of railroads the conversation for a while. It's an interesting interview. Just in the personalities involved. Were they all in the room together or were they interviewed separately? I don't know. It's it's just text. So it, it seems like it might be two interviews that were sort of jammed together, but they definitely were all in the room together because there are people being interrupted. Yeah, I will read that. It is not an oral history where like these quotes are just stuck in. Sorry, I didn't yeah. get to it. I only asked you to, I only gave you three days to do it. Ugh. Yeah, well, my comedian-ish plus lifestyle gets pretty busy sometimes. I had so, to yes. audition. I had to audition for the role of sad customer at Donut Truck. Hmm. I don't see it. <laughs> me either. I was like, me, the ray of sunshine. <laughs> did you Did you see my resume? I told them, <laughs> and they had not looked at it. They never do. There's just uh, do. Um, so I've interrupted this a few times. Let's get into 138. This is the uh, issue right after Phoenix has died, and it's the cover shows. Cyclops sort of walking off from the X-Men and it says, exit Cyclops. It's a weird issue because it's um, 90% just recapping the entire history of the X-Men. Yeah, the entire history, like from X-Men 1, not just the Claremont X-Men. Yeah. It's sort of a drag to read when you, especially when we've been like binge reading this more or less, like it's all very fresh in our mind. I think this is basically just for people because there weren't trades and there weren't collections, there weren't digital comics. It was just like, and maybe every now and then you just want to give everyone the backstory of what's been going on. I, I don't know what people would have thought of this at the time. Yeah, I don't know either. I was sort of impressed at how well Claremont knew the history. Like, given how much he covers, it's pretty like efficiently done, I guess. I mean, I was like, man, he really knows his stuff. He like knows the story of the X-Men. Yeah, but it basically it's... Uh, it's just this recap, and then there's like maybe a page and a half of the funeral. Which they're sad. Am I wrong in saying that? I think you were correct in that. Uh, mm-hmm. Lalandra's there. She gives like some sort of weird crystal orb to Jean's parents. Yeah, that you touch it and it reminds you of their personality. I'm not sure if that's a gift or if that's just a permanent way to be sad forever. I guess it's a nice thought. Uh, and then they cut to Kitty Pratt showing up at the X-Mansion. And nobody's there. Nobody let her know that they were going to a funeral. So yeah, they're just or, they're just organized in the X Men. They're not they're not great. They're not great at this emotional stuff. And you know, don't remember that half of them thought the other half was dead. Like I think earlier this year. Yeah, it's true. A thirteen year old just sitting outside on her suitcase, going, "I guess someone will show up eventually." Yeah, this is pretty self on air. They're in outer space. 
they easily could be in outer space, you know, they, you know, or underground, you know, yeah. fighting root monsters of trees. This is a superhero team. It could be anything. She could be on that front porch for months. Yeah. But this is pre cell phone era. People are used to just hanging around and waiting. Yeah, that's you expect it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's all of 138. So it's just all recap. Yeah, an impressive summary and maybe kind of boring. But Cyclops quits, I guess, is the important thing. Yeah, he's he's leaving the team. Yeah. Um, should we talk about the annual next? So there's an Austin annual, annual four. This is by Chris Claremont, drawn by John Romita Jr. instead of John Byrne. And it is a, like a Doctor Strange X-Men team up. Yeah, and in this story, Nightcrawler gets killed and they have to journey to hell to recover him basically yeah it's, it's nightcrawler's birthday he's 21 he looks uh he looks older he's he's an old soul nightcrawler yeah, 21 he looks definitely older to me and all sort of celebrating it the ages of the x-men are so confusing to me because there's no way wolverine is 21 and he's hanging out with a bunch of 20 like if he's 35 hanging out with 21 year olds that must be so no, no wonder he's a grump you know, he wants to talk. He wants to talk about Casablanca, and they're all like, "No, Daddy O, it's Star Wars." That's it. That's exactly. That's kind of a ton of gifts uh, uh, for one person. Too many also, gifts. I've never seen a superhero birthday party where one of the gifts is not from a villain that does something. Like, this should just be a protocol when you're a superhero and you get a bunch of gifts. Like, scan the gifts. Yeah. Because some alien has sent some kind of black orchid to give you your heart's desire. Or like some sort of trap. It's you know the submariner has sent you something that telepathically takes over all the fish or whatever. I mean, also just like don't open a gift if you don't know who it's from. That's good policy, really, for anybody. I mean, if we were at Christmas and there was a gift and we just did not know who it was from, we wouldn't open it. Well, that's not true. I did open a gift that was unmarked one year oh. Christmas. <laughs> okay, <laughs> from Booyar, you mean? From a fictional person. Yeah. And named Booyar, or a real person, but... Uh, I'm just going to uh, say, because this is a funny story, our family has a strange tradition where Kevin gets a gift every year from a that is labeled from Booyar, who is somebody he went to middle school with. And we but, are pretty mm -hmm. sure that it's our youngest brother who does this, but he's never admitted it. No, but he laughs and, and talks about it in third person a lot, so it seems like he's heavily involved. Yeah, he's not somebody I knew in middle school. He's just somebody who was <laughs> in my middle school. He was in ninth grade when I was in ninth grade. Yeah. Uh, and but, he uh, the school bus with me and my younger brother. And so, maybe uh, 20 years after we finished, after ninth grade, I started getting gifts from him. The first year I got uh, an un uh, it was just, it was wrapped in newspaper, it was unmarked. It just said from Booyard to Kevin. And it was left underneath the tree. And it was after we had like finished opening gifts, we were walking away. And I was like, oh, there's one more. I was the one who noticed it. I was like, I think there's one more thing under there. And Brian just started laughing. Yeah. And just said, well, who can this be from? <laughs> and I looked at it when it was Very suspicious. And then I opened it and it was a pack of camel smokes. Yeah. Very thoughtful camel gift. Cigarettes. Yeah. Uh, his a cigarette you know brand of choice. I take and it back. Brian and I laughed for like an hour and a half. But this this just and supports my it to the rest of the family. <laughs> this supports my theory. A supervillain, Booyar, got a yeah. gift to you by by you know sneaking it yeah. in there with all the regular gifts. This is the way supervillains operate. If he wanted to kill me, he could have. Well, he did. He was giving you cigarettes. He was trying to get you hooked on cigarettes. Oh, so that I guess would... that's true. I guess that's true. I didn't smoke them. I guess that was uh, no, he, it, he his plot didn't work, but he still took a shot on goal. Um, also, I don't know if you have the issue in front of you. One of the gifts Nightcrawler gets is a framed portrait of Wolverine. <laughs> <laughs> so Nightcrawler gets a, a Wolverine got him a picture of himself in costume. Very funny. Uh, Very but funny. yeah, so, so the gift like kills Nightcrawler. So they call Doctor Strange to look into it. And then they like go to Dante's Inferno to get uh, Nightcrawler's soul back. Yeah, they go to hell. And this is, this is, we talked about something reminding us of Alan Moore a couple issues ago. And this is a very Alan Moore thing to like tour hell and kind of like go through all the levels. It's also very literate, like in this issue. And we find out why this is true. Hell is really exactly as described by the Italian poet Dante in the epic poem, Dante's Inferno. Yeah. Every, everything lines up. And I would say almost it, they're showing off how well they know Dante's Inferno. This is a real like smarty pants issue. Have you read Dante's Inferno? I have not. Nor have I. So I I've read like same. Wikipedia summaries yeah. of it because like yeah. it's referenced so much. Yeah, same for me. I've read I've read some like brief summaries of it and read lots of things that reference it. People love labels 
and like names of things. And I think Dante just like, you know, almost gave like a dungeon master's dungeon module version of hell in his poem where there's like names for all the levels and characters that you meet along the way and, and who goes like where if you commit right. certain crimes what levels you get stuck in like he makes hell seem like a very ocd place you know what <laughs> i mean like really like well run there's also something funny it's like oh, if you're an adulterer you go here if you're a thief you go here when it's like and they're both torturous like if someone gets slotted in the wrong spot it's not like they're gonna have a good time yeah and it's also what if you do both like what if you're a pickpocket and you cheat on your wife like who's making those decisions i mean maybe the book tells you if you're a big Dante's Inferno fan, write in and let us know what you do if you are a thieving adulteress. And because Dante is a, a European, it's like very Western set. Like the, the bottom level is like Judas and Brutus and somebody else, right? Like the people who betrayed Caesar. Yeah, the Hamburglar. And Judas, yeah, the Hamburglar, I think. Way ahead of way <laughs> ahead of when that ad campaign started, Dante created the Hamburglar. Most religions have a Hamburglar myth, like a great <laughs> flood myth. Those are sort of, they go hand in hand. Yeah, somebody, yeah, there's always somebody stealing the burgers. Yeah. With no dialogue. Uh, what do you think of this annual? It seemed like a, a typical annual in that it's like forgettable, good mm -hmm. banner art sometimes, fun to see the powers being used. But I don't know, compared to what we just read with Death of Phoenix, sort of boring. Yeah, it, and it's very similar to the Archon annual, annual three, where they went to like Archon's realm. It's like the annuals where the X-Men go to like magic realms and have like a little adventure. And much later on, the one annuals I've read, or maybe their specials are the Asgard ones uh, that are really fun. Yeah. Uh, that Art Adams drew. But like <laughs> that's what, uh, for the annuals, the X-Men deal with magic. And they just go on a tour of a realm and we just get like a really detailed tour of it. I don't know it, but I kind of think that's what annuals are for. They're not supposed to disrupt the continuity of the regular issues, like a special treat. I don't know. Um, so I, I thought it was fine. What did you think? I thought it was, yeah, same thing. I thought it was fine. John Romita Jr. drew it, but I think he just did layouts because it doesn't seem like as good as his art usually is. I think Bob McLeod maybe that was more involved. It just like this pretty big slam on Bob McLeod right there. Bob McLeod is a, a good artist. I think John Romita yep. Jr. is a great you heard, artist. You heard it here first. Screw it, comics. We're taking on Bob McLeod. We're coming for you, Bob. I think this is just a time when, like, there's a lot of artists who would just do layouts. Yeah. And, like, oh, John Romita Jr. did layouts for like three comics and maybe penciled one of them, but maybe penciled none of them. And you don't get that too often now. You generally, you get guys who either are doing the whole comic or they just did layouts and they didn't do anything else. And the only reason they just did layouts is because they're that far behind. But this is the time where I think, like, they try to, like, get their talented guys' names on a bunch of books. John Romita Jr. is like up and coming, plus he's got the Romita name. So I think maybe that was going on here. Or maybe it's just early in his career and he wasn't as good, but I don't think so. I think he was firing in all cylinders by this point. It is kind of fun to see a non-John Byrne story. Not not just because he's so involved in the, the mm -hmm. plotting and um, it's kind of fun to see Claremont without Byrne. And it's, you know, still, still quite a fine story. It's also, there's this uh, weird thing where uh, Nightcrawler's girlfriend turns out to have been. Oh, right. The ending of this is nuts. Yeah. Like hell is revealed to have been. It's not the real hell. Yeah. We, oh, God. The wrap up of this story. So much is revealed. Like yeah. you're reaching the end of it and the comic's almost over and you as the reader are like, OK, I'm ready for it to be over. And then they make these huge reveals. Mm -hmm. Nightcrawler was raised by a witch, an adopted mother who was a witch. Um, he had an older brother he was best friends with. You probably love this part. And the older brother made Nightcrawler, uh, an adopted older brother, human, made, um, or non-mutant, made Nightcrawler promise, hey, if I ever turn evil, kill me. I don't know why that was a concern, but then I guess he did turn evil. Circumstances not described, and Nightcrawler <laughs> did kill him. That's yeah. That's barely gone into. The mother... Yeah just assumed that Nightcrawler totally murdered him for no reason and just hated him forever. I mean, Nightcrawler's adopted and looks like a devil. There's some... <laughs> yeah, but you've been raising him, right? Since you have a conversation with the guy and no. don't don't wait 20 years and construct a, fast, a facsimile of hell. He's got a devil tail. But yeah, also he's a devil. So if you're going to try to scare Nightcrawler, don't don't maybe make a heaven, right? Or something. I don't know. Like, <laughs> and the and logic is soft. And his adopted sister... Uh, who he had a crush on. Yes. Has been masquerading Hiding. as a stewardess. 
Yeah, we've seen like once or maybe twice in the last like 20 issues that Nightcrawler has a girly dates, but it's so brief that yeah. it, I'm not even sure that it was the same person, you know what I mean, or that or that the relationship has been continuing, but it is revealed here at the end of the annual, oh, no, no, this is his girlfriend, he has been dating her a while, but it's actually his adopted sister who's been hiding yeah, and they are in love with each other. So it's like, oh, good, this person I've been dating is also the person that I love, which is just, and she's my adopted sister. There's a lot of issues. I have issues with every aspect of that. This the whole, the, the, Africa, the annual is like inverted. Those like two pages where this is summarized, that's the story. You could summarize a trip to hell and back in like a page and a half. And it would be easier to summarize, you know, <laughs> we went into hell and beat a bunch of monsters that got you. Remember that? Yeah. Now let's get into how you dated. You're dating your sister and why she thought it was OK to not tell you and why you're OK with the fact that she didn't tell you. And why was she a stewardess? Did she just do that to meet you or was that a coincidence? It is very funny, the idea of like a witch <laughs> working as a stewardess just so she can date Nightcrawler. It's like. Hey, where I think like job and he had a crush on you just show up as the adopted sister like you don't need to and I think like he met her because she like walked by at the in the Christmas at, at, when they were at Times Square or Rockefeller Center looking at the Christmas tree I think is when they met yeah so he she just some, walked like, by and then hoping he'd flirt with her I mean it was it's a booyah like scheme I'm amazed it was pulled off it's a, yeah it's a real long con I remember, yeah, Nightcrawler like waves his eyebrows, wiggles his eyebrows, Groucho style, like at every pretty girl in those, and in, in, for a while there in those X Men issues. He's a um, scamp, I guess. Yeah, he's a. He's a uh, anyway, yeah, that's the annual. So I don't know if we don't really get back to it. The regular issues, so I don't know. I guess nobody cared that he's dating his sister or whatever, or that he's cool. from a witch family. Yeah, none of that. That's that's pretty normal. <laughs> uh, and then we've got two more issues. We got issues one thirty nine and one forty. This is a Canadian, we get a little Canadian story here. Wolverine yeah. wants to go patch things up with Alpha Flight since the last two times he's, you know, he fought them the last two times he saw them and he's from there and he kind of quit to join the X-Men and he feels he owes them an explanation. So he and Nightcrawler go back to patch things up, but they end up fighting a, a monster. Oh, Wendigo. They fight Wendigo. Every time you go to Canada in Marvel Comics, Wendigo shows up. <laughs> um, I mean, every time. I'm not I mean, even joking. <laughs> um, since John Byrne took over, Canadian John Byrne took over as the artist, Canada looms large in the <laughs> X-Men, in the X-Men sort of biosphere. <laughs> like this is a lot of Canada stuff going on. We also introduced Kitty Pride. She sort of officially joins the team. She was in the annual uh, mooning over Cyclops or uh, Colossus rather, not Cyclops. Um, but uh, this is sort of an introduction to the team as a team member. And uh, Angel, I guess, is on the team now. Yeah, Angel's been hanging around again. And again, there's no Iceman, uh, but a lot of the original X-Men have sort of been floating around back. Yeah, Iceman hasn't shown up one time. Claremont, we should have asked Claremont this. Why do you hate, 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 hate Iceman? I mean, That's how again, I would phrase the question. Yeah. If we ever interview Claremont again, we got to be more aggressive. He really, the, he really ran first, roughshod over us. I'm going to come right at him and say, you clearly hate Iceman. Yeah. You know what? Defend I think your he, would, position. he would love that question. He would have an extent. <laughs> I really do think like the minutia of the plot is like, that's Claremont's jam. Um, I mean, he would definitely have an answer. So yeah, Angel's hanging around. Kitty Pride is sort of joining the team, but that that's still sort of subplot status. The main plot is Wolverine and Nightcrawler up fighting the Wendigo and kind of patching things up with Alpha Flight. Also, Wolverine's in his brown costume that he had uh, for like most of the time. I I read comics as a kid. It was like this. I, this is the only Wolverine I ever knew. I never knew the yellow costume. Yeah. Well, this he has a good. Wolverine. He has a good reason for why he has this costume. Um. Why not? I think was yeah. his reason. why not is the reason that is given. He's basically John Byrne thinks it's look cooler, and he's right. It does look cooler. It does, but he's gone back mostly to this closer to this original yellow costume at this point. But this was his '80s costume for a long time. This was like the Wolverine costume. I have this my is, Secret Wars action figure. This was his costume. This is the costume he wore when he became huge. I mean, I feel like this yeah. is what he looked like as he became a superstar in the Marvel universe. Uh, and like, I think Cocker was going to change his costume to that weird Timberwolf costume from that he was wearing very briefly yes after fighting the imperial guard but john Byrne didn't like it as a story so he went back to the original yeah, wolverine costume so this must be maybe okay we are going to change wolverine's costume but i'm going to design it since i'm the artist and it's a good costume i mean john Byrne 
uh, is second, maybe only to Cockrum in costume design. And this is a good one. It's a really good one. Um, so yes, uh, uh, can I say one other thing about this? You one thirty nine. This is my first. This is the first time I'm going to give any allowance to the fact that maybe Canada can afford the Alpha Flight. Okay. Because we meet uh, uh, James Hudson's wife. Yes. And she's talking about how they have all these bills and they live in a squalid little tiny apartment. They don't yes. get paid. The Alpha Flight members are not paid well. So they're doing sort of a um, black box theater approach to economics. They don't pay the performers and that's how yeah. they afford the budget. They're getting, they're getting exposure as heroes. Yeah, yeah. So they're putting money into obviously the equipment and the tools. Uh, but I mean, I don't know. The Alpha Flight are risking their lives theoretically for all the Alpha Flight super heroic missions. Yeah, I hope they're at least getting college credit. And uh, they're just not paying these guys. Like I was trying to, for one of our emails, again, asking about. I can't wait for this mailbag episode. Um, the people constantly are getting mad at us because we claim Alpha Flight should not exist. Canada could not afford Alpha flying people get mad about this claim. Uh, but this is a point in their favor when I see how poorly the members of Alpha Flight are paid. It explains how they're balancing the budget a little bit. But we actually see the government in the end of the story, and they disband it. They're, they're cutting off funding completely. The Alpha Flight is no longer a government agency. Right. And the reason they cite it, I think, is it's too expensive. So we're backed up on that. Like, we're right. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was a bad decision by Alpha Flight. By we Canada. are putting... We have a bunch of forests we have to maintain. Yeah. Uh, you know, we got to get the loony and the toony coins minted. We they can't just together, be funding exoskeletons. And they like, put together a super team basically to keep Wendigo in check. He's the only villain up here. And that's too much. We need all, mostly in the woods, just like, you know. You need Puck or maybe Sasquatch only. Like, you don't need <laughs> Vindicator and Aurora and Northstar and, like, you know, and Shaman. And Vindicator doesn't seem to want to be a hero. Yeah, he's your classic reluctant hero. You don't know. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. And also, it's only some of the team. They fight very, very briefly when Wolverine shows up. Or they, they kind of feign to fight. And then they decide, oh, no, we're all okay. Like, basically, Wolverine shows up and goes, hey, man, I'm sorry I quit. Uh, you guys keep trying to bring me back. I don't want to. And they're like, okay. Yeah, what bothered them a lot 10 issues ago is like, no problem right now. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, like, as fun as the X-Men is, and it's so fun, and these issues are so good, they, they definitely like just change their mind issue to issue like to suit the story. Eh, I guess that's fun, though. I don't know why I'm arguing it. Yeah, it's very fun. It's very fun. And it doesn't make any sense. So um, at one point, Aurora, is it Aurora? Yeah, Aurora, who could turn, no, Snowbird. Snowbird. Who could turn into animals. She has like a sort of Phoenix-y kind of thing happen where like, when she'll turn into an animal to use their powers for good, yeah. but the animal nature can take over her. And she actually is the one who defeats Wendigo by turning into a white Wolverine. The Our Wolverine gets knocked unconscious. So yeah. she turns into a white Wolverine and has to unleash its beastly nature fully so that she has enough primal fighting energy or whatever to like defeat Wendigo. But then she can't, her human side cannot reclaim control and Wolverine has to like talk her, our Logan Wolverine has to talk her down. Um, similar to how Scott almost talked Phoenix down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of, I'm, I'm, that's a Claremont trope. I think like beast nature takes over and love has to talk you down. Yeah, I'm, I mean, call, I'm calling it now. That's a Claremont trope. We'll see it's it again. Thing. It's also the thing Wolverine deals with, right? The beast within taking over. He talks yeah. about a lot. It's a, uh, I don't mind it. I think it's a cool thing, but just how like you read an Alan Moore comic, somebody's going to get exploded and they have to mentally reassemble their own body layer by layer, which is something Alan Moore does sort of a lot. I also, think this is a Claremont thing. Um, also, uh, this is something only I'm interested in. And Nightcrawler finds out uh, Wolverine's name is Logan. Yeah. And it's an, he does this same move again, which is like, I didn't know that. You never asked. Wolverine's always saying you never asked to people. Yeah. Like, are we supposed believe, to be interviewing you? But I also just don't believe over two and a half years, no one said, what's your real name, Wolverine? I'm Kurt. You know, this is Peter. Yeah, they all call each other. Scott. They say Peter and Scott and Gene all the time. Like, the X-Men are always referring with their real names. And they're just, but, like, sitting around waiting, like, I hope Wolverine tells us his name, but I'm not going to ask. That's don't buy it. I don't buy it. Uh, anyway, now, but now his name is Logan, and uh, now that Nightcrawler team gossip knows, everybody knows. He's so nosy, that, that Nightcrawler. 
Um, well, those are the issues, Kevin. I, they're they're fine, right? They're they're really fun. Like Claremont and Byrne can just write a great little action story, no problem. Yeah, and I think issues like this are actually really really important. Uh, not so much the recap issue, um, but these two issues with like Wolverine going off to fight the Wendigo and and uh, Kitty probably joining a dance class or whatever happens in her story. Oh yeah. Uh, I think those are important in the sense that like without, if this had gone right in the days of future past, which I think I've read, but we'll see when we get to it, when I reread, when I reread and or read it for the first time. Um, when you get into those stories, they're so big and so epic. If it's one like event level story after another, you're basically just trying to top each other. It's, it's like movies, right? It's like each sequel has got to be bigger than the last. And TV shows don't have to do that. TV shows can have the episodes that are just a case of the weeks to sort of help you build up to the next one. And the pacing of that, I think, really is the, the joy of serial storytelling, where it's sort of like you need that breath or the buildup before the next huge event. Yeah, it makes sense. It's a nice pace setter. So it's a, having a good, fun, just adventure yarn is sometimes, I think, forgotten, especially in modern comics. I think it's sometimes forgotten where it's all just about, like, What's what's the thing we can blast on the cover and try to sell spin-off issues and 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 tie-ins and everything else? Uh, sometimes you forget. It's like ah, you also just need to have like the X-Men do an X-Men mission. We kind of blew past Kitty Pride's dance thing. Can we talk about that real quick? Yeah, let's talk about it. So Kitty Pride, who's new new member of the team, or maybe like a sort of you know still in sort of like training mode or whatever. Yeah, she's um, wearing um, like the old X-Men black and yellow costume. She doesn't have her own. Uniform. Oh, yeah. They name her Sprite also, which is a name that I never think of. Yeah. I mean, she's Shadow Cat to me, which it, it, she's got this weird thing. And I'd love to hear from our, our listeners what they think of Kitty Pride superhero names. I like Shadow Cat. I thought that was a good name growing up. I don't have an issue with it. It's been dismissed completely. She's just called Kitty Pride now in comics. She does not have a superhero name. Yeah. Sprite uh, seems dumb to me. I, yes. I, I remember just like as a trivia trivia fact knowing that her superhero alias used to be sprite and then was shadow cat i agree that shadow cat is fine but i have always thought of her as kitty pride only like i don't think of her by her alias uh, i think of her as both i think of her as shadow cat uh, mostly maybe because of excalibur which is the one of the comics i read a lot of it she was shadow cat in that uh, i mean she was also kitty pride but i in the same way i think of nightcrawler and kurt Wag oh, wagner as his name mm -hmm. like but that's just his name, Peter Rescue. It's funny, like Colossus. I think of Nightcrawler as Nightcrawler first and Kurt second. Sure. I think of Colossus. I think I think of him as Colossus first. Aurora, I think of her as Storm first. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know her name well or whatever. But um, Marvel Girl, I always thought of as Jean Grey. Phoenix, I yeah. always thought of as Jean Marvel Grey. Girls, Marvel Girl's a pretty bad name. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's going to be named after the company that you're a part of. You know, it'd be like if if like. If Mario Kart was like Nintendo Mario, it'd be like, well, that's a weird name. I think if she had stayed Phoenix for a long time, we might think, and like had never become Dark Phoenix, we might think of her as Phoenix first. Yeah, Phoenix is a cool name. Um, I think of Angel as Angel, Beast as Beast, but uh, Kitty Pride is Kitty Pride. I mean, Kitty Pride is a cool, uh, but it's not a good super. I don't. I, I'm down on superheroes where Jean Grey is now mostly called Jean Grey as a superhero. Um, you because like her that. aliases are bad, and it's just sort of seems lame. It's like Cyclops, the Beast, Wolverine, and Jean Grey. <laughs> and I Kitty think it's Pride. kind of point of it's like it's kind of cool. It's like your 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 personality is so you know dominant. We don't need to know your superhero name. Here comes Tony Stark. I know who you're talking about. <laughs> I guess I guess, but yeah. So you know, he's Iron Man. That's also a cool name. Just saying, come up with a cool name. I guess names are harder than people think. So anyway, in this little subplot. Aurora is bringing Kitty Pride into the city to go to a dance class because she's kind of scared. Kitty, not scared. She's like, you know, anxious. N new new phase of her life and sort of make her feel better. We'll go to a dance class. So Aurora has arranged this like dance lesson at this like with this premier dance instructor that Kitty Pride has heard of. And that that's basically all that happens. Storm gets kind of the heebie-jeebies from this dance instructor and feels like there might be something nefarious going on, but we don't see that in these issues. Yeah, and from talking to Chris, I feel like sometimes he knew what those EBGBs were, and sometimes he was just putting something in so that he'd have something to play with later. Yeah, uh, I agree. So we don't know if there's a plan yet here. But uh, what I wanted to point out was when they get to the dance studio, the door is locked, 
And so Kitty Pride like phases through the front door, unlocks it from the inside and lets Storm in. They walk up to the dance studio and the teacher's like, oh, good, you're here. And I'm like, were you planning on people breaking into your studio to get up here? Like you didn't buzz her in. You didn't go down and let her in. That's And the bottom floor is all abandoned. It's, I mean, that's not great business practices. You're not going to get a lot of walk-in traffic if you need to phase in to get to your studio. I mean, it's sort of how we run our podcast in some ways. Yeah, the only guests, they have to teleport um, into our Zoom session. We don't our send early any Our guests were all like when people reach out to us who were working in the industry. Like, I first, like Scott Ackerman being like, hey, I'd be on your podcast. And us being like, yeah. <laughs> I know, that was crazy. <laughs> so, like, our early guests were like great gets asking to be on our uh, uh, podcast um uh, jordan gibson being like hey would you like me and uh, joe and and chip to be on the podcast and i was being like yeah of course we would yeah you guys jordan white writing? also volunteered yeah. jordan white the yeah. x-men editor was like hey i'll be on that it's like we're so dumb <laughs> yeah yeah so um having people who are big in the industry ask to be on our podcast and us yeah. saying yes is sort of the equivalent of locking our door and hoping business comes <laughs> Somebody into our phases in. Yeah. It works. It works. Well, so that's our X-Men issues. Let's take a short break and do some emails. Fine. <laughs> All right. Hi, this is Kevin. I'm here with my brother, Will, and we are the hosts of Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics, our weekly podcast about comic books. And we want to hear from you. We have a slew of social media accounts, a slew. You can email us at screwitcomics at gmail.com or see us on Instagram at screwitcomics or tweet at us at screwitcomics. So tell us what you think of the comics you like or the comics you don't or things we've talked about on our episodes. Or send us some life advice. You can tell that we need it. Yes. Uh, we might read your message on a future episode of our show. So thanks in advance from Screw It, we're just going to talk about comics from Campfire Media. And we're back, Will. All right, let's get to this mailbag. Okay, we got, we got a bunch of things. Let's see. Um, I'm going to start with... Uh, we've got just a ton of emails, Well, I'm going to start with this one from Andrew Knight that I think is really, really cool. So Andrew Knight emailed us on October 12th. Uh, Kevin and Will, Milksops Excelsior. This past weekend at a convention here in Louisville, Kentucky, I got a chance to meet Jim Shooter. Hmm. And the first thing I asked him was, what was Steve Ditko like? Oh, interesting. So this is uh, what I would call a perfect email start. Yeah, I love this. Uh, I think he was caught, he was kind of caught off guard, but began with that he was a super nice guy and was one of the pioneers of comics, a founding father. He said he had always felt artists never got their total worth with their work, and Ditko was definitely one of them. He said that back in the beginning that Stan was the type that would side with the protesters of the time, whereas Ditko was more of the, the world is black and white and there was no in-between. At the end of his first run at Marvel, he's putting in a lot more time into the story than he was credited for, as well as the art, and that's the reason for his leaving. Shooter said that when he came back to Marvel in the 80s, one of the first things he did was find a book for Ditko to work on, and he couldn't believe no one had him there at the time. Subsequently, after he after he left, I think after Shooter left and moved on to various other companies, he always made sure to bring Ditko on whenever possible. He couldn't believe that an artist like him was not being used and so much talent had been wasted through the years because no one took advantage of Ditko's abilities at all. Shooter said that Ditko was one of the nicest people he ever knew. The world lost a great one when he passed. Anyway, I just wanted to drop y'all a note about all this. Love the podcast. And I'm on my second run through of the Spider-Man for PS4, finishing all the DLCs too. And it took forever to find Uncle Ben's grave. So take care and be cool. Andrew Knight. I think this is a perfect email. Yeah, it's great. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Andrew. I think that's so great to hear. Shooter, who I think is such an interesting person, talking about an artist that obviously Will and I think they're both those characters, those both those personalities are so interesting to me. To have one talk about the other one is fascinating. Yeah, and that's what and a great it, question. I do think it's easy in hindsight to be like, ah, oh, people should do more with Ditko. Uh, but he did hire Ditko, and so he did put his he did put his money where his mouth is, so to speak. But it, yeah, it's it's very it's easy to say the right thing, and it seems like Shooter did some of the right things too. I don't know. It's just very cool uh, to hear him talk about that. I also read an interview that where like Frank Miller called up Ditko and said, let's do a Mr. A together. And Ditko said no. So I don't know if Ditko was like, I think Ditko was a fussy man. He certainly had a right to be, but I, I think, yeah. I don't think 
he was maybe the easiest person to, or even even if he was quite polite about it. There's a number of stories of him turning down work. It's if he wasn't. It wasn't that he was not being offered stuff. He might not have been offered stuff he was interested in. Certainly, and, he could have drawn a Spider-Man story anytime he wanted. I'm sure. Yes, anyone would have taken him back to draw a Spider-Man story, and that, yeah, and maybe by the '80s he was right not to do it. I don't know. Maybe. Um, okay, let's move on. This is from Mark D. This, the subject is the death of Phoenix was one of the biggest blunders of my life. At the time of these defining X-Men issues were appearing, I had gone beyond being a reader of comics to being a collector. As I'm sure you both recall, one clear sign that someone had gone from being a fan of comics to being a collector of them is a zeal for gathering all of the published appearances of their favorite heroes. For some Marvel fans, the hero that sparked a lifelong collecting habit was a headliner, Thor, or Hulk, or perhaps a second stringer like Moon Knight. The object of my obsession was Uatu the Watcher. Okay. Why Uato? I blame a childhood exposure to several issues of What If and perhaps my love of the challenge. From an early age, I decided it was my destiny to find and gather the occasional appearances of this obscure yet cosmic character. Okay. So you can imagine my surprise that long ago day when I trekked to my neighborhood drugstore to eyeball this week's new comics, spotted my hero, Watu, on the splash page of, what was this comic again? Oh yeah, issue 137 of some obscure group called the X-Men. And this, and here is where the What If story of my life took a fateful turn. To my everlasting shame, I passed on purchasing <laughs> off the comic track on the day of its release. So I still funny. vividly recall the moment when I had a piece of comic <laughs> history in my hands and did the unthinkable. I put it back on the rack. <laughs> As the seminal issue has increased in cultural importance and not incidentally skyrocketed in value on the collector's market, I've spent many sleepless nights pondering this mistake of my wasted youth. How could I make such a blunder? <laughs> what led me to think this comic of all comics was not worth adding to my collection? I love the drama of this email. <laughs> was it the cover with its garish yellow banner stretching across the top promoting some long-forgotten contest? Was it the higher price tag for the oversized issue and allowance busting 75 cents? Was it some childish, childish lack of refinement on my part, a lack of taste, a failure to appreciate the mastery of the Claremont Byrne partnership? I can only conclude that I skipped over this particular comic book because of my own foolishly high standards as a comics collector. To my young yet discerning eye, not every issue is worth preserving for posterity in my unique and admittedly obscure archive. Yes, I most likely declined to purchase this now legendary issue because there wasn't enough watching in it. <laughs> Yours is comic collecting shame, Mark D. What a great story. It's really funny. It's, I mean, uh, it's, uh, his portrayal of it is the best, uh, but also that is very funny that he did that. I'd vowed to watch every movie with lightsabers in it, but when I got to A New Hope, I said, not for me. <laughs> no one's going to care. Um, yeah, funny. Um, here's one I don't really have an answer to, but I'm going to read anyway. Okay. Um, this is from Julio Casada. Uh, hello, Milksops. I'm listening to the Death of Phoenix episode. After reading this arc, which has been adapted twice in movies and also in the X-Men animated series from the 90s, which one do you think adapted the story better? Uh, what bits of the story work for an adaption? Do you have a take on what should be on Dark Phoenix movies, series, etc.? Your friendly neighborhood, Julio. P.S. The Claremont interview was awesome. Oh, wow. uh, Thank you. I have not seen the Dark Phoenix movie. Uh, I did see X-Men 3, which I guess also adapted it. Right. I saw X-Men 3. That's the only one I saw. I never saw the animated series, and I, I heard the Dark Phoenix movie was bad, unfortunately, so I yeah. didn't see it. Yeah, I, I didn't watch the cartoon, and I heard that... Maybe I should watch the cartoon adaption. That'd be like one episode, probably, to watch. Um, um, I, mean, it, I think it is very adaptable, particularly as a sequel movie. Yeah, I mean, I think it's incredibly cinematic. I would... Here's the weird thing. I'm going to guess, not having seen two of the adaptations, yeah. that the bad movie is the best one, only because it seems to have focused on it fully. And I think it does need some room. You so, don't think the cartoon probably did it the best? Maybe the cartoon did it the best. I, I don't know. The cartoon at least would have the ability to like build up to it over a few episodes. Yeah. Well, why don't you uh, pick the cartoon and I'll pick the movie and we can we can battle it out sometime. What do you think, if you were going to adapt this into a movie, that's your job, you've been hired well. They said, we're not going to give you the Enforcers TV show, but we'd like you to do the Death of Phoenix. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, and, you, and you fought with them for a while. You're like, the Enforcers is a bigger deal. I want the Enforcers. Yeah, more culturally like, significant. No. Someone's got to tell the story of Montana. Like, no, we need Phoenix done right. You're the guy for it. 
Uh, we got um, Steven Spielberg wants the enforcers. He's got him. So you're getting Phoenix. Okay. I what, how do that. you do it? What do you, what do you do? Um, you can't even have the enforcers in it. So not just, even, not even like a little Stan Lee ish cameo. Not even as a kid, they won't even let him. You have them in the teaser and credit scene. Yeah, ask for forgiveness, not permission. I'm putting the enforcers in this movie, <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't. You know, it's just, uh, you know, you got to put. I this might be what the bad movie did, but it's just putting Phoenix as the center of the story, like. And it's the story of power corrupting. So do you do Hellfire Club? Do you have the Hellfire Club? No. It's that's that's too many stories. Like I, okay. it's just the story of power corrupting. So I would have another villain, big, powerful, who can beat this villain? You know, Thanos level, uh, bad guy, um, and that is what is going to cause Jean to make the ultimate sacrifice. But there'd be a lot of episodes of her letting her power get away from her before that. Sure, if it's a TV show, it's a movie. I guess how do you do it? I think it's a little tricky to fit that in two hours runtime, right? I guess See, I meant this... episodes. I meant like sequences. Like oh, okay. the th- the theme of the movie is power corrupts. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a Lord of the Rings style. Like the One Ring gives you a lot of power, but also turns you into Gollum. Kind of kind of. I think vibe. it is helpful if you've established that she's got some sort of phoenix power prior to this movie because if you're mm-hmm. establishing she has this power and then it's so it's a similar problem you have with spider-man in the black costume it's like he gets the costume is it, it realizes an alien gets rid of it and then it becomes venom and then threatens him it's you, you've already had to cover so much ground to get to venom yeah you'd almost wish that the alien costume happened in a prior movie how would you how would you do the Death of Phoenix. I don't know. It's it's just up to a lot, right? I think you are right. Like you do need her to have this power. It's, let's assume she doesn't have this power yet. She has not been established as Phoenix yet. You probably have to kill her like in the first sequence. You have to kill Jean Grey in the first sequence and have her kind of come back as Phoenix. I think I might even not have that be how she gets her power. I think it might be, I think I would do a lot of changes. It would just be like a young mutant telepath gets her power amplified through some meddling or something. I think I would have her like, you know, she opened Pandora's box. She did something forbidden and, and amplified her power. And like, it was, it was a bad decision. Do you have her fly into space and destroy a planet? Yes. For sentimental reasons, I would want that to be true. Uh, Especially if you're going to kill her at the end, you want her to do something deserving of the death versus just being powerful. Yeah. I don't know if she kills anyone in the X-Men movie, X-Men three. She's like threatening, like they think she will. So they kill her like Wolverine stabs her or something. It's a bad adaptation. Yeah. There was a lot going on in the movie. There was also like a mutant cure. Yeah. Taking a lot out. Like, cause X-Men three was more about that X-Men, the mutant cure than, uh, yeah. It it deserves to be the center of the story. If you're going to do it. Well, I don't know if we were the people for the job, Julio. Thank you for asking. And then Montana <laughs> throws his rope, but at the last second tries to save her, and he just can't do it. His rope tricks just ain't good enough. Uh, okay, here's a question. We have a question. Let's see. We got a bunch from uh, Tony Labra. So I'm going to go through them real quick. One, he sent us – we talked at some point about um, Aunt May becoming Galactus's Herald. Yeah, Golden Oldie. And we couldn't remember where it happened. It was Marvel Team Up issue 137, which was Assistant Editor's Month. We remembered that. But it was not a hoax, not a what if, not an imaginary story. It's where Aunt May and Franklin Richards, it's called Aunt May and Franklin Richards versus Galactus. Mm-hmm. And on the cover, she is the golden oldie and she's pulling Franklin, who's holding Twinkies in his hand. You remember the Twinkies? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it was a real story that really happened. It's in continuity, I guess. Uh, so thank you for sending that, Tony. Uh, Tony also sent us an email uh, um, about our interview with Chris Claremont. Here's the question he wished we asked. Okay. Um, uh, he basically wants to know why Uncanny was added to the title, which is something I didn't even realize. X-Men 141, which is what we're covering next, uh, Mutants and Mailbags was the last issue before the title officially changed to Uncanny X-Men. When I say officially, I mean issue 142's Indica noted Uncanny. 
And lots of online databases, including Marvel Fandom, noted this as well. But the word uncanny was introduced way back on the cover of 114 and was on the cover of 141 as well. Whose big idea was this to add uncanny to the title? I'm going to guess Steve Ditko's, says Tony. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so that's an interesting I great question. Thought it was yeah. always uncanny X-Men. I thought it was uncanny X-Men. Me too. I thought it era. was like it seems like a Stan Lee move to like add the unnecessary adjective to the title. Yeah, but it was just the X-Men, I guess. Yeah. And then he asks you in your filing comic books, do you do U or X? X, no doubt. Yeah, X. You ignore all the adjectives, especially nowadays when they like reboot so constantly and change their adjectives. Spider-Man's all just Spider-Man, comma, amazing. Hulk is H, not I. And also when you're looking for a comic in your boxes, you're like, oh, I want to look up the Hulk. You want to go for H. You want yeah. to know where to look. That's, I love filing questions. Good question. And then Tony's final email is about um, cartoons. Do either of you find rewatching our childhood cartoons a real struggle? Thanks to HBO Max and Disney Plus, practically every Marvel and DC cartoon from the 70s and beyond can be streamed. Uh, I can watch my all-time favorite cartoon, Johnny Quest, uh, and not wince at the stories or even the animation. And as a problem, uh, and as problematic as that Jeeves characterization may appear to modern audiences, he was never made to look or act inferior and often saying the day when his street smarts, with his street smarts or sleight of hand. But I get it. It's not fair to compare tunes from the early 60s to content from the 70s and beyond, because a lot of those oldies but goodies like Johnny Quest, the Flintstones top cat, to name a few, were shown in prime time after dinner. When adults would get the kiddos to bed and start watching TV, it's as if the target audiences were really the adults. Uh, I blame the Saturday, Saturday morning cartoons, uh, the FCC, U.S. Congress, and parent organizations that felt cartoons were too violent. When the human torch was swapped out for Herbie the robot, uh, and then he talks about we got super friends, not the Justice League, we get Spider-Man's amazing friends, not Spider-Man team up. Enough with friends already. So he's basically talking about cartoons, and, he's, and he thinks they're a real drag, reading uh, cartoons as a... Um, that were like big when I was a kid, I would guess. And I don't rewatch them. What about you, Will? I don't watch them. They're too slow and boring. Sometimes for sentimental reasons, I've like put on like the FF with Herbie because I watched that as a kid. But, you know, <laughs> they're not good. Like it's just sort of like not fun to watch. Basically, Bruce Tim and the quality of uh, the animated series, Bat Batman the Animated Series, ruined all the cartoons that came, all the kids' cartoons that came before it because it was like, oh, this is what a good one is. Yeah, definitely. I definitely watch like clips of old cartoons, but I don't think I could sit and watch a half hour of any. I don't think I could watch a half hour episode of Amazing Friends, Spider-Man's Amazing Friends, as much as I loved it as a kid. I'm probably most likely to watch the 60s Spider-Man. For some reason, that one is a little bit more watchable. I don't I think know the, why. The first season of that is sort of fun, but I, I'm still not sure I could watch a whole episode of it unless I was like just making myself do it out of curiosity's sake. Yeah. Uh, definitely the later, the, like the second and third season of that, he just web slings the whole time, if I recall, and he doesn't actually do anything. It's like, it's all filler because they can just repeat the web slinging animation. Yeah. I mean, I grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons and I, I have gone back and watched Super Friends at times when I could, they were airing on Cartoon Network or Boomerang or whatever those channels were. But like, I think it's like I'd flip and watch it and then when a commercial hit, I'd flip away and not come back sort of things. I, I don't sit and watch them. I'm certainly not loading them up on a streaming network and watching them. They're a drag, I think, and I think you are right. Uh, but I also feel that way about, like, I'm not watching old Flintstones or Johnny Quest cartoons either, so. Yeah. Uh, he goes on, Kevin, I love that you watched the more recent Spider-Man animated series with your son. If streaming was around to the extent it is today when my now 22-year-old son was five or six, I have a feeling all those shows that I bemoaned earlier would have been not so bad at all to watch. And that might be true, but I don't make him watch the old ones. I don't make him watch. I'm not going to put on Amazing Friends for him. I'm not putting on, like, he got into, uh, he found my Duck comics recently, and so he I showed him some DuckTales, and I showed him the recent reboot. I didn't show him the old Disney Afternoon ones. Because mm -hmm. those Disney Afternoon ones were okay, but I think they're going to be slow and yeah. flat compared to the new ones that are just sort of fast and exciting. And, like, there's some things that are probably better about the old ones versus the new ones, but pacing is so much better in current cartoons generally. And he, because he watches current stuff, he's not going to want to go back and watch Rescue Rangers, I don't think. Yeah, we, we would have been bored to watch old adventure serials when we were kids. Mm -hmm. uh, truth be told, at the time, I was just ecstatic that my favorite Marvel and DC heroes were at least being given TV exposure. With me, anyways, it kept me super interested in the source material, comic books, and 50 years later, I'm still hooked on comics. And yes, the new crop of Marvel and DC animated shows. 
and I think that is the truth, right? Like when we were kids, it was just, oh, there's superheroes on TV. Yeah, it was the best option. I watch, I watch Super Friends and that's all I got. You know what else I enjoy watching? They're, they're not streaming anywhere, but I, would, I might watch a bunch of is the old Marvel superheroes, non-animated animated shows. Yeah, just with the Kirby cutouts on sticks? Yeah, because it's Kirby and Ditko art. I, I went back at some point when we first started this podcast and watched a couple of the Hulk ones. And they're a blast to watch. Yeah. Um, and it's just because it's like, oh, that's the art I love just being pushed in front of my face. <laughs> Literally, like, shoved it's, across It's almost so badly animated that it's a choice. Like, it's almost like a style in a strange way. Yeah. So I would watch those, maybe. Uh, well, how are we doing for time? How many more do you want to do? Well, 15 more. 15 more? Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point, we asked somebody, we asked about selling comics, how much money you can make. I think when we had Alex Segura on, we talked about yeah. that. So Kevin Bettingfield wrote in. It's a long email. I'm just going to skim to part of it. He's selling his comics is basically the, the short version. I've known others who sold five or six long boxes of comics, approximately 1,500, 1,800 comics or so, and get 300 to $600, maybe 1,000 if they're lucky. I decided that if I really wanted to get a return on my investment, selling the comics as a whole wasn't going to do it. So I decided I would sell them on eBay. I did some research and began going through my collection, picking out those that were key issues. Uh, for recent issues, uh, you guys were right. Giant size X-Men in almost perfect condition can get 60000 I don't have that one, though. Incredible Hulk 181, first appearance of Wolverine, uh, will get you 88000 for a pristine copy. Uh, another one I don't have. Uh, both of those are from 1974. Finally, the first issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, because as you mentioned, the low print run is going for $135,000. I'm fairly certain I had this one at one point, but I sold several boxes to my collection in the late 80s and regret it with every breath. I've made $11,000 selling off my collectibles and a small portion of my comics. Uh, the single item that earned me the highest amount was Amazing Spider-Man 300, first appearance of Venom from 1988. I made $989 on it. Uh, if I had it professionally graded and slabbed, I would have gotten triple that amount. Uh, $513 for first appearance of Cable and Deadpool. So he's just kind of giving us some prices on there. So it is possible to make money selling these things. If you're yeah, diligent I, about it and you have a high volume of them. And I think my issue was, I, when I sold some of my comics a while back, um, my issue was the time it took me to like take photos and post them and wrap them and send them in. Unless I'm getting like a thousand dollars, it wasn't worth. It to, like I was like, I'm getting paid like a dollar an hour for this. Yeah. When I was getting like forty dollars for like a run of comics. Yeah. So I found it just time consuming. But I guess if you've got a couple big ones, it's worth it. Yep. Uh, thank you, Kevin, for that email. All right, this is from John Borns. Hey, Silk Mops. No, nice. I was just listening to one of your mutant mailbags episodes, and one of the mailbag questions was essentially. I wonder what it is like to be an adult reading these for the first time, which you both obviously are. I also happen to be an adult reading these for the first time, and I must say that they're a ton of fun and I'm having a blast reading them. I'm doing something very silly concurrently, which is that I'm also reading the newer X-Men books that Jonathan Hickman and company are putting out simultaneously. It's been very fun to see the modern and original interpretations of these characters juxtaposed against one another. I'm uh, I'm doing this too because I just started reading House of X and Powers of X uh, as we record this, like a month ago, not maybe not even. So I'm also reading this kind of new, rebooted, really strange, trippy version of the X Men, as I'm reading the, you know, Claremont version that that created the world, basically. Do you think uh, one benefits from the other being read at the same time, or no effect? They're both just good comics. They're both really good comics. It is helpful to read them both because Hickman's. Uh, makes so many references to things in the X-Men canon um, and kind of like, so like Master Mold is referred to a lot in the Hickman comics as the as the Sentinels rise up. And uh, I thought that was something he made. But then when I read the recap issue of X-Men that we went over today, uh, it summarizes how Master Mold is where all the Sentinels come from. It is the, you know, the, the main source sentinel that gets like copied or whatever so i was like oh that's a convention from the pre-claremont x-men comics that hickman is you know recontextualizing um so i i think it is beneficial yeah, i mean there's a radically different reading experiences uh creators don't make new characters anymore they just re 
package. Contextualize. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's an art form into itself. And Hickman, and I would say Immortal Hulk also kind of has fun with like taking something that you were familiar with in one way and making you look at it from a totally different angle for fun. I think it's kind of cool. Um, John goes on to ask, uh, unrelated to his previous comment, of all the X-Men, who is the coolest looking panels? Uh, I've never been a big Cyclops fan, but from what I've seen, that dude has the absolute coolest panels. Whenever he's doing a big optic blast, it looks sweet. More <laughs> importantly, whenever the team is shocked or awed by something, they seem to over-exaggerate his mouth, probably because his eyes aren't an option. And it makes a totally unique looking panel that always seems to grab my eye. Tell me I'm smart or tell me I'm an idiot. I'm going to do it either way. Uh, you guys rock John Boris. What do you think, Will? Great, great question. Weirdly specific. I'm going to say the old um, Colossus has the best ones. When he does the fastball special, he'll uh, throw Wolverine across an out-of-nowhere extra-long panel that like will break through several structures or something like that. Like We saw that in the, the Archon Annual, and it's happened a couple other times. So I'm going to say Colossus has really good ones. I think he's got a good point with Cyclops probably having a uh, – he probably has a higher consistency with cool panels. But I think when you get a great Nightcrawler panel, those are some of the best. When you do fun when stuff with this teleporting. through a bunch of stuff. Yeah, when you've got like him in three spots at once or a bunch of clouds or that cool one where he's like in two panels at once, that stuff's great. So you're an idiot. We, yeah, uh, we, 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 we just talked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But those are only two options. I would have loved to have uh, been nicer about it, but. You gave us no choice. Let's do one or two more, Will. Okay. Uh, from your pal and mine. Uh, Dan Gelati. Yes. Because uh, uh, this is, he mentioned something that uh, I want to talk about. Uh, uh, continuing to greatly enjoy the Mutants and Mailbags episodes. Very fun. Uh, very much in the interview with Chris Claremont. Uh, that was a swell interview. And I look forward to the unedited, unexpurgated unex, uh, uh, version. I can't read. Uh, maybe you should interview John Byrne. He's got a lot of opinions. <laughs> Uh, in my book, he was as much responsible for the rocket ride of the X-Men as Kirby and Ditko were for whatever they did for Marvel. But seriously, the X-Men, like the Beatles, were best when the two were together, and I don't think that Claremont with anyone else was ever as good. I would argue that Byrne may have done better alone at the FF and Man of Steel. Uh, even though I wrote before that I didn't uh, need to reread these issues because they're all burned into my brain, I haven't gone back. I have now gone back to reread, and damn it, these comics don't hold up. They're fun, smart, funny, exciting, and so amazing to look at. I enjoyed hearing Chris talk about watching Burns' meteoric growth as an artist, and I really agree. He always had a certain uh, something, but as he rolls from Savage Land to Hellfire Club to the Days of Future Past, he just gets better and better. It's crazy. And now here's the interesting part to me. Well, apparently for a while, Burns was negotiating with Marvel to do like Claremont did and do a continuation of the X-Men, X-Men Forever style. He couldn't come to an agreement, so he's just been publishing the penciled and lettered pages on his website for him nearly every day for a long time now. It's a pretty amazing thing. Like all creative types, I think John could use an editor now and again, but considering he's offering up the goods for free, I ain't really complaining, boy. Dan sort of turned into Banshee there for a second. It begins the moment after the battle for Phoenix's life with a shot Shi'ar on the blue area of the moon, and it goes from there, showing how Byrne would have solved the problem of Phoenix if Shooter hadn't stepped in. It's pretty fun stuff overall, and Byrne really does get my X-Men very well, I think. Uh, one last thing as you get to Days of Future Past, Byrne is a good story about how Chris's scripting often ran counter to Byrne's plotting and drawings. Um, one example... Says how Claremont snatched a clear win from the X-Men that Byrne intended and made it a defeat. Uh, and he has a link to that conversation. Um, and then he's jealous of you, Will, for getting to see Chris Claremont on Main Street. Yeah. Uh, he goes, how did I miss that? So he's mad <laughs> about that. Um, so yeah, he talks about these John Byrne um, continuations. So I looked into it and found a bunch of them. There's 20, what did I tell you, Will? 21 issues, 27 issues? 27, I think he said. 27 issues he's done of comic. He's not getting paid to two. Yeah. Uh, all pencils. I mean, maybe one of them was done as like proof of concept or something. Yeah. Um, so they're just pencils with like computer text laid on for the word balloons, no inking, no coloring. And yeah, they're basically his what if version of him telling next men, sort of with future knowledge, because like these characters have evolved a lot since then. And he's using that as he writes these. 
Uh, but he is setting it back in that time period. And I've read the first two issues and they're very interesting. It's very weird. Yeah. He, he also posts these pages out of order. So they're sort of a pain sometimes to read. Uh, like I read the first issue and I was like, this feels so disjointed. And then I realized afterwards that um, there was just missing pages because right. I had okay. read them out of order. So they can be sort of a pain to find and read correctly. But I'm now, I do plan to read them all. And maybe you, you'll read them too, Will, and we can discuss them because I think they're yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I'd, like, I'd like to read them. Yeah, I'm, I plan to. I don't know when it makes sense because they're sort of overlapping with what we're reading right now. They also smack a little bit of like Byrne being like, I would have done it better than Claremont. Yeah, but it seems, it seems like there's a little of that going on. But if you go second, I think you, there's always an advantage, right? Yeah. Because you can clean up the things that didn't work. Right, uh, right. He's not being forced by editors to kowtow to anything as well. So, and he's also not dealing with an artist who's pulling against him. Like he can do whatever he wants. So it's not necessarily... I think a fair comparison between which one is better, or which one is worse, but it's definitely an interesting thing to read. I'm definitely going to read it. I can't wait. Um, but yeah, look for those. It's called X-Men Elsewhen. Is it there? Yeah. If you Google that, you'll find it. It's basically just on his forum, like message board threads. Um, and like I said, there's 27 issues. I, I did try to look at it and it was kind of hard to like piece through the threads and find when and where they'd been posted and what order. So I, I'm kind of waiting for some nerd to gather them up, but I think I think people have done that too, right? Yeah, I found some that have been gathered up, but they were out of order. They were just in the order he posted them in. So okay. I have cleaned up the ones that I have found, but that's only like the first 19 issues. After that, you'd, you'd be on your own reading it in this forum, which I found not that hard to navigate, but you know, I'm five years younger than Will, so technology doesn't yeah, scare just, me. Internet's internet weird. I mean, there's threads that basically say like, that John Byrne posted this thread and it's just the photos and the rest are comments. So, you know, you just go to the ones John Byrne posted. Right. Um, but like, uh, just from skimming them, there's at least one issue where like he, and I haven't read the issues around it, so I don't know what's going on, but like Colossus has broken his leg or something. And like, there's some page where John Byrne basically is like, I don't want to deal with this thread anymore. So he just fixes John Byrne's leg. Colossus just leg is just better. Yeah. And John Byrne is like captioning over saying like, I just didn't want to do this plot anymore. It's <laughs> just not something you could really get away with in non-She-Hulk comics, I don't think. Right, right, right. Anyway, uh, thank you for telling me about that, Dan, though, because I think it is fascinating. I had no idea that was happening. I think that's a good one to end on, Will. What do you think? I think that's a great climactic ending. A fellow Danbury native sends in an email. We we got to respect it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a handful more, so we'll be doing another one of these episodes soon. Yeah, so uh, keep listening, Silk Mops. I like that one. Um, we're going to uh, we'll be back with guess, more Mutants and Mailbag. We'll have a we'll guest next week. We haven't recorded yet, so we're not going to say who it is. Yes. but um, We probably have a few more guests coming up. Maybe, yes. maybe not. I think so. Um, yeah, we'll see what happens. Thanks, everybody. We'll always, see. We've locked our, our, our front door, so hopefully you'll come in and listen to our next episode. Yeah, we've locked our front door, so phase on in if you want to be a guest. Uh, goodbye, everybody. Bye. Ever wanted to hear from the neighbor at nine Cloverfield Lane? Or what if I told you that Dr. Loomis's worst patient wasn't Michael Myers? I'm Adam Peacock, host of the podcast, My Neighbors Are Dead. Join me each week as I talk to the lesser known characters from your favorite horror films. Each week is an all-new, fully improvised journey into the unknown, featuring friends and luminaries from the worlds of comedy, horror, and beyond. New episodes every Tuesday on Campfire Media. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Campfire.